Purpose Highway is a space for discussions that drive connections toward people's highest purpose to build a better self and a better world. Join me for season one, where I start to uncover stories of entrepreneurs and thinkers that are making an impact. I'm your host, Scott Mason, and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Scott Mason's Purpose Highway Podcast. It is good to have you watching and listening today, and I have yet another extraordinary guest in the house by the name of Josh Corpel. Josh is a former ship captain. Top that, anybody. He's also the founder of Funnel Happy, which is software designed to simplify customer experiences for company. And he's also, as if that wasn't enough, the founder of Fire Builders, an automated AI-assisted accountability program for coaches and educators. Josh, welcome into the room today. How are you, man? I am super stoked to be here. What's up, Scott? Thank you so much for having me. I am doing well. That's good. You know, you are talking to us from outside in Key West. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm on a porch in Key West, Florida at the moment, surrounded by a whole bunch of roosters, particularly one very vocal one named Elvis that is right there. Is that Elvis? <laughs> That's Elvis. Well, tell Elvis hi for us. And if he has something to talk about, we may interview him someday, too. <laughs> <laughs> now, I am going to talk to you about a bunch of fascinating episodes in your life today. But one thing before we start that I want to just get out there. Of all of the people that I know, I think you have had the most wild, crazy, outrageous number of adventures of anybody. <laughs> so you may have to take a, take a second before you answer this question, but do it because it will be worth it. I want you to tell everyone about the biggest, wildest, craziest adventure you've had in a life full of adventures. The biggest, wildest, craziest one. Hmm. Uh, well, that, that, my friend, is a tough choice. Uh, but I would say as far as, as far as like overcoming challenges, right? Challenges, day-by-day -day challenges, things like that. Um, it's the... Uh, the motorcycle. So I bought a motorcycle in New Delhi and I rode it all the way to Tibet, all the way into the Himalayas and up like about 14,000 feet or so into Tibet. Well, no, I didn't go into Tibet, but I made it to the Tibetan border and then back. And the stuff that happened on that trip was insane. Like, well, uh, yeah, let's go back a bit. You were in New Delhi. Were you doing anything special there? And what made you decide to just, in a foreign country, get a motorcycle and, and just ride to Tibet? I went to New Delhi looking because I knew that I was going to do this. But I, that, was, that was it. I knew that I would find a place. I would buy a motorcycle. Technically, foreigners are not allowed to buy motorcycles. So we had to fudge the paperwork and stuff. Had to find somebody that could do that. And New luckily, in, in India, <laughs> anything's possible. And, uh, and then... Um, and then just rode north and had no real clear agenda and just sort of let let things happen. Uh, and that ended up taking me all the way up into a, a, the state of India called Himachal Pradesh. And from there, there's one single road that, that runs that was cut by the British 
and it runs all the way to Tibet. In fact, it was called the back door to Tibet, and it runs through a thing called the Spiti Valley and then the Parvati Valley. And then, uh, and we're talking like, it's the kind of scenario and environment that you see on like the world's most dangerous roads. Tell us, what does it look like? I mean, it's, it's just like, the, it, it's just one single road, like wide enough for a single truck. Um, and there's no guardrail. And on one side, it's like a 5,000 foot cliff right up. And on the other side, it is like a 5,000 foot cliff down. And, <sighs> and you are just riding along the edge of these mountains. And, and what's crazier is that you just have to, you know how, you know how, when you think of, New Delhi traffic, you just hear people blaring their horns and everybody, and it just seems like chaos. Yeah. Well, the horn's not the way that we use horns in the United States. Here, it's like, hey, I'm pissed off, like, "Eh," no kind of thing. Right. But there, the horn is a declaration of presence. If you do not use your horn, people won't look and they won't know that you're there. And especially if you're on a motorcycle, they'll just run you right off the road. Wow. So there's all kinds of blind hairpin turns on this this road all the way to Tibet. And these trucks are just flying around the corners. And so you just have to honk the entire time in order to just stay alive. And can I ask you, was that slightly stressful? Or after slightly. a while, did you just get used to it? <laughs> uh, you, or do you, you never dare get used to it? You definitely got desensitized a little bit to it. Uh but yeah, you're on you're on your edge like every single minute, and uh, and that I would have to say, and then all kinds of I mean, just the driving part was stressful. But then we got avalanched into a small little Buddhist town called Kaza, and and we got stuck there for two weeks. There was the the road got shut down. I mean, the avalanches. There's only one road in and out, and mm. uh, and it caught everybody by surprise. Number of people died. Uh, in really? this massive storm, it took it took everybody by surprise, and uh, we're stuck there for two weeks before the road could be cleared enough to ride out. And that ride out was probably the hardest ride I've ever done in my life. It was well, insane. Well, let's talk about that two weeks in the village. Like, I, I, were you like outside, like drinking snow for water? I, you didn't know anyone. Did you have money? Did you have, you know? Howard, how did you get to food if it was if it was so snowed you couldn't even leave? Like what? What they what had? Happened? They had they had a, a little a little like a little place. It was it was like half restaurant, half someone's house, <laughs> uh, and they made amazing food, amazing uh, lots of lamb, tons of lamb, uh, mutton they call it mm. over there. So the food was great. Um, I had you know I had saved up uh, maybe like three or four grand and over there in India that goes a really long oh, way. Yeah. So I had the money. Uh and and yeah, and we I stayed in this little guest house. There's, you know, these these things, I mean, there's no there's no hot water. They have to boil hot water in these big things in order to uh take a shower and kind of clean yourself. And I mean just drank a lot of chai, played a lot of guitar. Uh I learned how to knit from an old an old woman taught me how to knit a hat. Uh, like, I don't know. So you just, you just make the best of it. But I, I really, I really, it was great. I made the best of it because, uh, because one, you have no choice, but two, you're in, you have an opportunity to really meet people, to talk with people. I mean, normally I would have just like blown through that place, but mm-hmm. I got mm-hmm. to live there for a couple of weeks and it was, it was just a great experience in retrospect. And you talked a little bit about the road out. Tell us if there's a story there. Oh, we love stories. 
there's a story. Uh, I mean, the story is, is that you do whatever you need to do to survive in those kinds of environments. So the road, and I use that term loosely, uh, the road is nothing more than essentially a creek, right? Mm -hmm. Because at that point in time, all of the snow melt just destroyed the road. Mm -hmm. So it's all mud and rocks and things like that. And the journey was only about and maybe like 100, 120 kilometers to the next town. But that 120 kilometers, you could, you, you were making maybe like, uh, it was an incredibly slow pace. And what you, what you learn in that environment is, is that there's these, the road itself has these giant puddles, right, of water that are, you know, probably like two and a half, three feet deep. And you have no idea what's under the water. It could be massive rocks, it, you know, whatever. And so you have to, when you're on a motorcycle and there's, there's only one way you have to just ride through it. Uh, and so that's what I did. I encountered these things and I would stop and have to pick one of the two tire truck lanes, like the ruts in the road and get a head start and just gun it and ride through this water. If I were to stop, if I were to stop and let the bike fall over, that was it. I'm in the middle of nowhere. That's, that's curtains mm -hmm. for me. Like, um, so you just have to gun it and move through it. And I feel like that's a good metaphor for life. Cause a lot of times you just have to, you have to just go for it and you cannot stop. Like you cannot stop. Uh, so yeah. You but, know, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, so anyway, anyway, like the, the, at the end of the day, um, made it through all of this stuff, lots of mud. The bike was almost completely destroyed by the end wow. of it and, uh, and ended up making it to, uh, the next town and fixed the bike up, spent some time there, this little place called Manali, uh, and then just moved on. You know, I might be someone watching this podcast or listening to it and thinking to myself, wow, what a great story. What an adventurous life that person has lived. Um, but, you know, I've got my nine to five. I've got my comfort zone. And he's trying to tell me about these lessons that, you know, how you just got to go for it and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I'm kind of scared to do that. That's easy for him to say. What might you say to someone like that? <laughs> well, I would say that, uh, that it's, they sound like big, scary problems to have, for sure. But I would also argue that your life will be dictated by the size of the problems you take on. What do you mean? So uh, in a sense that uh, if you're constantly worrying about small little things in life, that's exactly what your life will become. Like uh, for me, I tried to take on much bigger challenges, things that were way outside of my comfort zone. And to be honest, like, I didn't know that any of it, by the way, can I swear on this podcast? Yes, you can. We have rated it E. And by the way, if anyone's ears are too tender, close them now and then, you know, <laughs> just uncover them in a few seconds. Go. It's the sailor. It's the sailor. <laughs> and he just wants to swear, man. Uh, yeah. You know, like I didn't know what the hell I was doing or what I was getting myself into. A lot of this stuff just blindsided me. Things that happened with the bike blindsided me. Um, mechanical problems. You would wake up in the morning and someone, and you found out, oh, hey, we're in the middle of nowhere. And someone somehow, some way backed their truck up into the motorcycle and knocked it over and broke off the brake lever. 
great. What are you going to do? Uh, so you, you know, so you, you, you get, you get hit pretty hard with those, but, but after you get through them, you one, find out how resourceful and resilient yeah. you can be. And two, you're proud of those things in retrospect. You look back and you're like, damn straight. Like I got myself through that. Yeah. So anybody that's scared to take on those challenges, I would use, use ignorance as bliss to your advantage. Just go out there and do it. Don't worry about what could happen, right? Just go and take it step by step. And I promise you, adventure will find you. <laughs> well, and the other thing that's interesting about that is we can spend, at least in my experience, we can spend a lot of time worrying about what will happen if I take the risk and I do that, or if I decide to take the left turn instead of just going straight down my little lane. But then life has a way of throwing you these curveballs, whether you like it or not. And one of the things that I've personally found useful about stepping out of my comfort zone prior to life's catastrophes throwing the discomfort at me has been that I was a little bit more prepared for these unexpected, unwanted, unasked for adventures <laughs> when I had been able to embark in them voluntarily in advance. Am I crazy here or does that make any sense to you at all? No, no, it makes sense. I mean, no matter what you do, you're going to have, you're going to have challenging times. It just depends. It just depends on. And I think that if there's an expectation out there that you really need to be prepared for anything and everything, I mean, I get, I'm, I'm for the whole Boy Scout motto, like be prepared kind of thing. But there are just some things that you can't prepare for, or you can't prepare for everything. Um, so, uh, so here's, so like in, in the vein of your storytelling, right? Like there's a great analogy because in addition to the sailing and addition to the, the motorcycle stuff, I was also a mechanical engineering designer in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. And there is no, for the, a lot of the things and projects that we were creating for guys like Chris Angel and Vegas and places in China and MGM and wind casinos and like Justin Timberlake and stuff, we were building things that had never been built before. There is no path right? There is no, hey, back of the book answer, right? So you end up, you end up learning that you cannot, you can't read every engineering and physics textbook out there and be prepared for every possible scenario yeah. that will be coming your way. You have to let the work teach you the work. Um, it'll, it'll show you what you need to learn. And so that's a, yeah, so that's, so that's how I feel about it. Just, you know, mentally, you can prepare yourself as much as possible. And I think the preparation should be something like, hey, whatever comes my way, I'll be able to get through it. Yeah. Right. And yeah. yeah. It's interesting because after 9-11, I was involved in skyscraper safety legislation, which was, um, as you could imagine, legislation that was designed to make sure that if there was another sort of terrorist incident like that, as few people would die because of buildings collapsing as possible. Mm -hmm. And because of that work, I got pulled into some other big, um, large-scale disaster preparation meetings. Fortunately, not that many because at some of those, I actually began to have nightmares and stuff afterwards. And the one that triggered the nightmare was the last one I was at, where actually a, a whole discussion about it briefly came up about, you know, okay, well, these this scenario can happen, that scenario can happen, a third scenario can happen. And then they're like, oh, and then if a nuclear bomb goes off in the middle of Manhattan, well, we won't discuss that one because there's not a lot we can do. And right, that's what I tell people. You truly cannot prepare for everything. Yeah. A nuclear bomb goes, but amazingly, you know, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, people survived. 
And then sometimes people made it through and they learned and their, their life trajectory changed, which by the way, sometimes these unexpected adventures. And I would say if, to, to maybe perhaps have the understatement of the year, having a nuclear bomb go off in your hometown is the adventure of a lifetime and one that would be extraordinarily unexpected. Right. But that it goes as to um, something that I almost use as a mantra, but I'd love to hear your opinion about, which is when one heroic journey ends, another begins. Do you agree with that? And what might that statement mean to you? And what does that meant for your life? When one heroic journey ends, another begins. I think, I think in theory, I would agree with that for sure. I mean, it, I think it just depends on the context of what you think heroic means. Uh, for me, the being your own hero right in your own story of life is important i i think that that anybody that subscribes to that idea and actually lives by it is going to lead one hell of a life right they're going to lead something that they're absolutely proud of and and i would say the heroic journey part um there's going to be some things that you do that are a little bit more heroic than others in my opinion like like you know going to the store to uh you know to Costco and picking up a whole bunch of that might not be the most heroic journey. Sometimes However, it feels that way though. Sometimes, <laughs> like, yeah, sometimes like on a Sunday, that is a heroic journey because you got to get through. Uh, but, but I guess the point is, is that, is that you, there has to be some context. There has to be some perspective to this. I think the more heroic journey, it, it means that the, the challenges that you've overcome have been much greater. Like you've surmounted something that you previously didn't think was possible. Um, that to me is a very heroic junior, not, not just because you kind of see yourself as a hero, but also that other people can look up to your courage and, and mm -hmm. uh, essentially emulate that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, so what it means to me is just leading, leading by example and treating every moment, every moment, as it's in, as important, like um, as important as it possibly can be and not being afraid to be decisive and just go out there and go for it. So, um, so I'll give you, I'll give you a story example with this, right? So, uh, so it was, it was something that absolutely changed my life. Um, the, when you mentioned the tall ship captain stuff, right? Yes. It wasn't like I always just, I just signed a, a, a paper and I was like, hey, yeah, you know what? Want to be a tall ship captain. Feel like doing it. I, I'm glad you raised that because I wanted to ask how you ended up doing that. So maybe you could find a way to wrap that into the story because people need to know. <laughs> yeah. Like, like how, how they actually, how it goes, like you get it. Yeah. How you end up doing that. Well, I started as a volunteer. Like I started, there's a ship called the U.S. Brig Niagara in Erie, Pennsylvania. You guys, if, if anybody's listening right now and you feel like looking it up, just Google it. Brig Niagara, it's the replica of an 1813 warship that was used in a very, very important battle against the British in Lake Erie. And the story goes that the Niagara and this, this captain, Commodore Hazard Perry, um, he had his own fleet of ships. They were sailing against the British. The British made, um, well the the u.s fleet got decimated right mm. but one particular ship ended up hanging back because it had some issues mm -hmm. that was the niagara and so when commodore perry got his fleet decimated he was on the u.s side 
he jumps overboard, swims to the Niagara, takes command of that ship, and then makes a really strategic maneuver and defeats the entire British fleet with that one ship. It's unbelievable, massively famous, famous battle. Wow. And that was the first time that we had ever beat the British on the water. And that happened just on the western end of Lake Erie. Wow. So, any, so anyway, there's like a there's a fascinating history with this ship, and I uh, I I volunteered on it, and I wasn't sure what to expect, but I ended up loving it so much that I stayed for months. I lived on board. We sailed all over the Great Lakes. I learned how to sail a square rigged ship, which is essentially like what you would imagine a pirate ship looks like, mm-hmm. and uh, and then and then from there, that world is so incredibly small that I made a lot of friends and I hopped on another ship that was sailing out of the great lakes, out the St. Lawrence seaway. And we picked up this group of passengers in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and we taught them how to celestially navigate from Nova Scotia to Bermuda. And then from there dropped them off, picked up another group and sailed down to the Bahamas also doing the celestial navigation thing. And, uh, and that kicked off, that kicked off an entire career in working and living and sailing aboard these ships. Amazing. Cue yeah, the rooster. I look, even the rooster agrees. Cue the rooster. <laughs> Was he on the ship by any chance? Oh. Would have been, he would have been, I don't think he could have hacked it. <laughs> He's just got a big mouth, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. But, but to answer your question, yeah. right, you, in order to qualify for a captain's license, you need a certain amount of time at sea, like registered days at sea. And, uh, and so with all of this stuff, I worked my way up from volunteer to deckhand to mate to bosun to like, you know, all the way up. And I had enough sea time at the end of it, at the end of a number of years that I was able to take all of the Coast Guard tests and get my license. Wow. What did you like most about being a sailor? Oh man. Uh, the, the work and the people, uh, the adventure was pretty cool too. I mean, there's nothing like being out in the middle of the ocean uh, for days and days at a time, being very self-reliant, self-sufficient, traversing that edge between control and, and being out of control. I mean, there's only so much the, you know, the ocean can throw at you. They'll just, it'll just, it'll converge on you pretty quick if you're not constantly vigilant. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're a master of your own domain. So you understand that ship, you understand what it can do, you understand how powerful and, and tenacious it can be, right? Um, and you go through all of these storms and squalls and then you live through them and, uh, and you just like, it just teaches you a lot of resilience. Oh, I can't even imagine. I cannot even. Im- now, you were a ship captain and then you were founding tech apps. Huh? Through line? Kind of. Explain. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I hit a plateau with the captain thing and I decided I wanted a change. So that's when I went to India and I was trying to figure it all out. And then, uh, and then I found a program in Boston that, um, that I joined. It was a credibly competitive engineering program that they give at BU. And I, uh, went back to school. I took all of the undergrad classes that I would have taken in a four-year education to get a, uh, a BS in engineering, but I did that in a year and a half, like mm. a, basically a year and a half, two years. And then from there, as long as you maintained a 3.4 or 3.5 GPA, 
they could they would then let you apply just like anybody to the master's program and then from there you could get a master's from BU so it was it was crazy man i i had to teach myself i had to to get into this program i had to do a whole bunch of crazy things that really pushed me out of my comfort zone i had to teach myself calc um, trigonometry and calculus just to get into a calc 1 class to then apply to this program it was it was incredibly incredibly competitive but the point is is that that whole idea, that whole engineering phase took me into the entertainment industry and working in an office, designing some of the coolest stuff around for the entertainment industry. And then I realized, hey, man, this this office life, I love it. But the people around me, um, I didn't want to I didn't want to like, I don't know, just have that feel like they, they were very, very good at what they did. But the office life just wasn't for me. I felt like there was something bigger that I could do, so I uh, I started teaching myself how to uh, how to create mobile apps, and I created three of them before I uh, I realized that I knew nothing about sales and marketing. So the technical side of things I could create, but I had no idea how to sell. So then I got into that world, and then from there I got pretty good at it, and then saw saw holes in the market that I could fulfill with subscription software and my own solutions to things. And that is how I made it to where I am now. You know, in a lot of ways, the jobs that I have had that have been related to sales and business development, and to the extent that that is a component of my own job as an entrepreneur every single day, uh, is actually some of the toughest work I've ever done. I would say in many respects, although I enjoy it, I love it actually, because I'm a people person. Right? But it, that being said, it's still one of the hardest jobs that people can do, at least that I, that I have ever done. And it requires an incredible amount of resilience. Were there any lessons that you learned maybe from your time as a ship captain or in the entertainment industry or, or in, in, in other aspects of your life that might've given you a leg up? Do you even agree that sales is a challenging job to be in? 100% do. Sales is all about understanding and communicating with people. And I, there's, there's two massive lessons that I learned in both tall ships and the engineering world. Um, in tall ships, you learn, you learn to really communicate with folks because you can't, you can't escape them. You know, you're living on this 150 yeah. foot ship with in a tiny forecastle, which is the forward, the forward hold of the ship. And if you have a beef with somebody and you guys aren't getting along, you have to like take care of that shit immediately. Mm -hmm. Right. You, you can't just at five o'clock, go home and escape your coworker and not think about it until the next day. You got to live, you got to work, you got to communicate. And that taught me those lessons. But with the engineering part, it's funny because the engineering side of things, it is less about being good with math. Of course, you have to be good with math. You have to ace your math classes, everything from Calc 1 all the way up to advanced engineering mathematics in order to even get a shot at some of this stuff. But what I did find is that a successful engineer, it is less about how good you are with the math and more about how good you are at explaining and convincing other people that wow. your points of view are right. Because like I said, some of the stuff that is built, there are guidelines that you have to follow, agreed upon guidelines in the industry. But a lot of it, a lot of it, it it's gray area. And you have mm -hmm. to logically think through all of that stuff 
and back out your reasons why it's more like being a lawyer, Scott, than it is Mm -hmm. being an engineer. Mm -hmm. It really is. Mm -hmm. And we're talking Mm -hmm. like sitting across from people at the desk, like Disney execs that are looking you square in the eye. And they're like, dude, our, our giant project that you're working on, right. That we've sunk half a million dollars in, like, is it going to work or is it not going to work? Like, tell us, you know, they don't need to know that they exceeded the fatigue limits of this, you know, sort of thing. And then it's not, they don't want to care about that. It is all about convincing them of your ideas. And that's what I think sales is. It's all about working with humans and understanding and breaking things down into, into digestible chunks that, that people can understand. Yeah, it's interesting. I used to have a debate with my ex-business partner about this because business development and sales were the were one of the areas that I handled in our during the time we were working together. Um, and you know, he well, I'll just put it this way: one of the points that I like to make was that as an attorney, I actually was selling all the time. I was selling an idea, even when it came to trying to pursue public policy objectives or how a uh, particular idea should be implemented or what it could look like or any number of non-litigation related um, public policy or, or general organizational initiatives. It involved selling that idea. And as an yep. attorney, the art of persuasion is one of the key success components. Yeah. And so I totally get what you're saying. Um, and I think that that is, that was one of the things that best prepared me for being in that role in my life. Now, oh, and I, I do, and I think oh, it's, and I think it's, 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 um, it served you so well, you know, you, we talked about how you've re-identified, reimagined yourself, you know, you've reinvented yourself throughout these years. I attribute that a hundred percent, like your success of doing that is because you can take and convince other people that that your ideas are worth following. And uh, and that's, I mean, that's, I think, one of the most admirable and useful skills that anybody could have. Well, anyway. it's what you and I both have in common with Madonna, which is that we are the masters of personal reinvention. Yeah. She did it, and you and I do too. Let me actually go back, though, because there's something embedded in what you said earlier that I think is of such universal applicability that I'd like to just highlight and get some thoughts um, from you about. And that is you living in that tiny space in a ship and having to deal with the problems that you might have had with your coworkers or with uh, with your shipmates on the spot, or at least without the ability to stomp off and go to another room. It was mainly it was mainly knife fights. That's the way that we were able to handle most of it. That's undramatic. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit more about that. Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm mad at my husband right now. So maybe we'll just have a knife fight. Yeah. Tie your hands together. One knife in the other hand. And then two people in, one person out. What, what is a knife fight? Most people don't even know. <laughs> I'm, imagining, I'm imagining knives and, and chests. I it think was, you're not talking about that. Though. It was... Uh, it was um, you had to do it in a nonviolent way. Like the thing was, is that people that, that everybody, we all had the, the same goal, right. Which was essentially to survive, but, but everyone had to work together in order to make the ship run, to make it run smooth, right. So that everybody could get an adequate amount of sleep. They could all be aware. They could all maintain the same level of vigilance about the weather and about the state of the ship. You know, there's a lot, to it it's like a small little microcosm of the city Mm -hmm. and uh and you you have to know 
how to handle that conflict. And it takes practice. Like, like no one's really the best at it when they first come in. But, but I think that for us, uh, the just laying it on the line and, and telling people how you felt and being honest about it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it helped to have a mediator there, Mm -hmm. you know, if you really didn't get along, but it was, it was also because we were, we were collectively suffering. Like there was a lot that we were, we get the shit kicked out of us in the North sea for like Mm -hmm. three months straight, you know? And, uh, and you are in a stressful situation. Everybody's all super stressed out. But, but if you, you all have a collective goal. We're all suffering in the same way. And there's a respect that comes from that. So we were also able to very much clear things up and we, and and it, it kind of like made us zoom out a little bit and realize Mm -hmm. like, yo, this little like beef that we've got, it's just Mm -hmm. so small in comparison to what we're actually trying to achieve. So let's just, let's just hug it out and be friends and like Mm -hmm. continue on our way. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the time that's what happened. And if it didn't happen, and somebody was just like, no, you know, and they were absolutely 100% trying to, usually they never really made it in the crew anyway. And we would kick them off the ship right at the first, at the first sign of port. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it does sort of remind me how and you, you know, you read about this in history, you read about it in literature. And, and some of us have lived through situations like this where you may be with a small group or in a, you know, some sort of relationship. And I'm not necessarily talking about a romantic relationship, but any sort of interpersonal relationship with another human being. And you go through extreme trauma or extreme stress. And you might not have even liked each other at all uh, up front, but you go through that together. You share that mutual goal of making it through. Sometimes it can be the very act of survival. Sometimes it can be, you know, just overcoming that obstacle or dealing with that stress. You do it together. And then over time, the old bitternesses or irritations or frustrations that you might have had with each other come back again. But you'd never, at least in my experience, when that's happened with that sort of person, I've never and they've never really crossed a certain line with you again, because I think there is that understanding you went through that together. What it does to me is it humanizes them in a way forever. The part of them through that very difficult situation that I admired that enabled us to be together and survive together never really leaves my mind. So I never would really completely turn against them and nor would they ever completely turn against me. Am I talking fairy tales here or is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, you know, I was just reading in Dale Carnegie's book cause I love that how to win friends, influence Isn't people. I mean, amazing. Reread that all the time. Yeah. But one, one thing I just read, you know, is that the truth is, is that everybody that you end up meeting feels superior to you in some way, right? At least at the beginning, it's just mm-hmm. the way that we all feel. Right. Mm-hmm. And and as long as you can, the way to win an argument is to not have one in the first place. And the way to do that is to recognize that piece of them, right? Like give them the respect that they feel like they deserve. And I think that collective trauma or the stuff that you go through together really puts that piece into place for people, right? Like, like, hey, dude, if you know, if you, Scott, if you and I, right? We're on watch in the middle of the Atlantic and there was a squall coming and it was 3 a.m. and you and I had to run up in the rigging and climb out onto the yard arms and take sail in, right? And the wind's howling and the ship at that point, it is when you're up like a hundred feet, 
the ship itself is just kind of you know rocking like this and you can you can feel it and it's depending on the waves but when you're up there the arc that you make is way longer and so the accelerations that you feel are much more powerful and you have to hold on or the ship will just fling you right off of itself wow um, so so point is is that you and i do this we fly up there wind is howling 50 knots right we, we're screaming at each other trying to communicate we get the sail in we get back down you and i look at each other and we're like fuck yeah we just did something really hard like really great like i respect you it wouldn't matter if you and i had a difference you know and 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 you ate the last piece of bacon or something like that <laughs> right. you know the last meal right? right it's like dude i respect you for that like you did it i did it like nice work it's that kind of camaraderie um so i agree Josh, we have only scratched the surface of a life that you've lived, which has been unbelievably rich and full. And I might add, for anyone who's listening, you are by no means an old man, so I'm sure there are going to be a lot of adventures going forward. But <laughs> one thing that I'd like to ask you about this um, this adventurous, rich, multi-layered, exciting life you've had is, do you think you've had it because you were constantly searching for your purpose for your place or do you think that your purpose and your place and the things that you were seeking changed changed but i would say that from a very young age i i um didn't really get along with too many i only had like one or two friends i wasn't super popular at all in fact i was the exact opposite got made fun of a lot got beaten up like like the whole nine yards when I was a kid and that, that anybody that's gone through that, we've all gone through that in some way, shape or yeah. form, but anybody that's gone through that develops their own personality, their own little type of resilience. And I found for me that I started to do things the exact opposite of way of the way that everybody else did it just out of spite. <laughs> like, you know, just, just because I didn't agree. I didn't agree. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that, I think that, has led to a lot of these adventures, to be honest. Like when people tell you, don't go, you know, don't like, like I moved to Israel with a girl um, and against just about everybody's wishes um, a number of years ago. And everyone's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, why would you do that? The, some guy was like, the first thing that you need to do, Josh, when you get there is buy a gun. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right. Everybody had, everybody seems to have <laughs> advice what they would do in that situation yep. or whatever. Right. I took all of that and was like, I am, I had, you know, I respect your opinion. Thank you, but screw you. I'm yeah. going to do it anyway. And, uh, that, and it turns out that most people, most people don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. They don't know what they're talking about. So that's why, that's why I think that it's, it's helped me have that have that that motivation to do things in spite of what everybody else has done and i do think though that the journey the things that i've been searching for the reason like that that the the fulfillment that i'm looking for has changed it certainly has um but the common thread for me is like if everybody's doing it like i'll probably do the exact opposite and find my own way and then We'll see what the hell happens. Josh, this has been extraordinary. And there is so much more for people to know about you. How can people 
find out more about you? How can they connect with you on social media or online or anywhere else? A couple of different ways. Uh, they can find me on Facebook, Josh Corporal. I'm on Instagram, uh, Saltwater CEO. Uh, I have a software, firebuilders.io. So that's a good way you can get in touch with me. Uh, you can send me an email, josh at firebuilders.io. Um, and I've got, I've actually got a, uh, a show called Firebuilders Live that you were mm-hmm. on, Scott, and rocked. Like, uh, and I, I filmed that six days a week on Facebook. And it's also on like all the podcasts, you know, Apple and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, I bring six guests on and we break down big ideas into really small executable steps for folks. So, And it is entertaining. I'm a regular <laughs> fan. And so yeah, that's why I considered it such an honor to have you here. Josh, th- I want to give, by the way, a brief shout out to someone who has been a guest on this show before. And I want you to listen to her um, podcast episode if you hear it. And I think that you probably will give an endorsement to her too. Adrian Miller, who connected us in the first place. Namaste, Adrian. Seriously, she is such an amazing woman and a, and a great friend. And like, you know, she she does it right. I feel, you know, as we, Scott, I think the reason that you, Adrian, and I we get along so well is because we're all in that same wavelength. Because I yeah. feel like you do things your own way too. Oh, I do. And she certainly does. <laughs> you know. So uh, so yeah. So I uh, I I really respect everything that you and her are doing, man. Well, she feels very strongly about you too. And as you know. Um, I am the number one fan club president chair of your fan club. And, um, and that's why I'm so glad to have you here. Everyone, it has been a pleasure having you here watching or listening to this show. Josh, it's been great walking down the Purpose Highway with you. We will see everybody at the next episode. All right. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Join our community today at PurposeHighway.com and subscribe to get notified when new episodes go live. Scott Mason, checking out.